This is Shane Holloway, one of Stephen Hall's all-time great. Here with my guys from Left Coast Pirates. Let's get it. seconds to go down by two. Here's Whitehead. Guarded by Ochefu. Gets the step into the lane. Goes to the bucket. Layup. Rolls around and in. And a foul! Whitehead ties the game! Pow! From Trenton! Woo! What Trenton makes, the world takes! From just west of the Ward Place Gate in San Diego, California, he is Mike Deziri, class of 2001. I am Tom Kaharski, class of 1997, and we are Left Coast Pirates. Welcome to this week's edition of Left Coast Pirates. It is January 16th, 2022, and man, did we have a rough week this week, Mike. What, what do you got playing in the background for me? What, what is this? Mike, you can't recognize this? You know, since no, I, it's January and we're no, in no, wait, time I for rec- the January swoon, I figured we'd get a little Sinatra ready and so we could have some songs to swoon to here, Mike. I was about to say, I recognize the chairman of the board. That's not where I was going. I don't need to give, give me an education on historical music lessons or classic music, but you really, we're, we're, go, we're going there already? They're, they're two and four. I'm frustrated. This was not a good road trip. We at least wanted a split when you had the pull on the schedule. And, and we're there again. I'm we're we're there. We're we back wanna, to the January swoon. We want to get ahead of this, Mike. I don't want to be the last guy who mentions the swoon. But when you lose to a team like DePaul and then follow up with a loss to Marquette, I, I'm ready for the swoon, baby. And well, you should be we, ready, we, too. We have to redefine what, what the interpretation of good swoon music is. I mean, I, I know we were sitting there debating this earlier in the week after they lost to DePaul. And we said maybe we're going down this path. But, but I'm sorry, to me, it, the swoon is about the emotion, the, the sadness. I, I, come on, give, give me some like REM, like everybody hurts, right? Michael, I mean, the lyrics that's are like, not songs you swoon to. That's like, that's like check on me in five days. Send me, you know, a wellness check kind of song, man. No, that, 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 that's like put me in the nut house, make sure I don't slip my wrist type music. Like, that's you know, everybody, what I'm saying. everybody cries, everybody hurts sometimes. No, no, no. With January, it's all the time with Seton Hall, it feels like. I'm sorry, Tom. This is, uh, we want to stay positive. We want to know that this could just be another blip on the radar after they lost two games, you know, prior to bouncing back against Butler and UConn. And you're going to say, all right, here we go again. Backs against the wall, two games against the Johnnies coming up. They'll figure out a way to figure it out. But at the emotional roller coaster with this team, the emotional roller coaster with this program and this coach, it's exhausting, Tommy. It's exhausting. I don't understand why you think, for one, we should be positive right now. There was nothing positive that came of this week. And I don't know why you would think that we would have a good week against St. John's coming up with what we saw these last two games. I'm sorry, Mike. 
I'm not in a good mood. I'm not a positive mood. I'm not ready for this. I'm not either. But I mean, there have been signs with this team that have shown that higher ceiling. And then obviously part of the warts that this team has, you know, reared their ugly head and showed through in these two games again. I was hoping that as we progress throughout the season, we're going to kind of work out some of those kinks. We're going to be trending to playing our best basketball as we head into February and March. And here we are again with this program, knowing that there's potential to do better, raising the expectations, and then finding out that we have the same fundamental flaws over and over again that has plagued this team from achieving a higher seed going into March to best position itself to get to that second weekend. I'm not writing the season off. I'm not saying the sky is falling, but all of a sudden what looked like it could be a top of the Big East, high C, maybe maybe a three or a four line for the NCAA tournament. Now you're back to middle of the pack, getting in that like eight to 10 range. And hey, God forbid you stub your toes some more and we're questioning the resume of this team about just getting in the tournament in general. And at the beginning of the season, Tommy, you said to me, bring back all these guys. Don't develop all the newbies for the future. And you got to give me deep tournament aspirations. Otherwise, you're going to be upset. And now we're kind of teetering as to which direction this season might be headed. Are we going to get back on track and show that dominant non-conference defense? Or are the wheels kind of falling off here a little bit? And maybe Willard can't figure out how to get him back on track. I don't know right now. You know, it didn't seem like this was one of those same old, same old teams, you know, but we end up losing a game to the bottom feeder in DePaul, and then we don't come back and show more resilience against the Marquette team, man. So let's just jump in and go with this. I got to pull that Band-Aid right off and just get with it. So this week on the podcast... We will review the losses against DePaul and Marquette. So, first off, DePaul 96, Seton Hall 92. The Blue Demons were upset-minded from the get-go. Javon Freeman Liberty scored six quick points in the first five minutes, helping the Blue Demons open the game up on an 18-6 scoring run. Seton Hall did claw back to within six, but was unable to trim its deficit any further. David Jones scored two breakaway layups off a pair of steals in the final two minutes of the first half, which ultimately helped boost DePaul's lead to 17, giving the Blue Demons a 52-35 advantage at the half. The second half started much like the first, a little bit louder, a little bit worse. But even after falling behind by 18 points, there was no quitting the Pirates basketball team this past Thursday. With Freeman Liberty exiting in the second half with an injury, they staged a furious rally, pulling within two points late before dropping a 96-92 stunner at a near-empty Wintrust Arena. All right, Tom, the box score on this one, Jared Roden, 25 points on the afternoon, but it took him 22 shots to get there. 10 of 22 from the floor. He also added seven rebounds. Bryce Aiken chipped in 22 points on five of 15, doing most of his damage from the free throw line, 11 of 12. Ike Obiagu, seven points, 10 rebounds, six blocks, and Kadari Richmond with 11 points, 
and six assists. I guess you're going to fill the box score a little bit when you score 92 points. But so did DePaul. And they were led by Jalen Terry. Coming into this game, Tom, averaging 5.1 points per game. And what does he do? Yes. Yes, here we go again. A career-high 28 against the Pirates. And that man, David Jones, the guy who told you to be worried about after you put in 33 against Louisville, what was he doing? He was crashing the glass for eight rebounds and also pounded in 24 points. Uh, the team stats, free throws. This is, this is tough on the eyes. 77 combined. DePaul goes 36 of 45 for 80%. And they were coming into this game on the season, 67%. And Seton Hall went 29 of 32 to try to hang in there. But Tom, I, I think the turning point's an easy one in this ball game. They got smacked in the mouth in the opening five minutes yet again, this time to a 18 to six tune, as you highlighted in the recap. It set the tone from the start. The Pirates never led in this game, and they really weren't in it until very late with that furious rally, and they never got a possession where they had the ball down by one score. So, I mean, it was, it was it's nice in terms of the final box score that it looks like they came back, but they really didn't come back in a manner of like, hey, they, they had a chance to pull it out. I mean, it was a... We'll talk about maybe that questionable foul call on, on Jackson Steele that possibly could have tied it up. But, I mean, in that game, when you're reaching and pressing, you're probably not going to get those kind of calls. So, you know, nice rally, but they lost this game in the first five minutes. Like They let DePaul believe that they could play with them. I, I think you were almost, you are this close to saying my favorite turning point of the game is the jump ball. I think you were that close. But you know, Mike, I'm going to take a lesson from you. You know, you always like writing those narratives and I'm going to write my own narratives. I'm going to, I'm actually going to steal your narrative. The tiger that changed his stripes because all of a sudden, Aiko Biagu is grabbing boards. I thought if he was blocking everything, Mike, he couldn't grab any boards. Ten boards, six blocks. He was still all over the court. What a way to play. Disproved you and your buddy online's theory that you can't grab rebounds if you're going to block shots. Ike looked good. Well, slow down, slow down. Easy off Pirates here with the Z, okay? You know, he was just making an observation that you can be effective not grabbing rebounds and still impacting the game in terms of what Ike does for blocking shots. I didn't say that Ike should not walking grab a rebound for the rest of his career. Walking in circles. I, uh, lo I love here. it. Ike played good. I think what happened, let's, I think what happened let's get is, off of us. Let's get on Ike. How, how good I, did Ike I think Ike what happened is Ike listened to the podcast, and he was just like, <laughs> I'm not going to let Tommy tell me that I can't grab a rebound. So look, let's not just go get one or two. Let's go get 10. Let's give him a nice round number and slap it in his face. Yeah, I, I believe Ike has the ability to adjust his game to challenge shots in certain scenarios more often than not. And in other situations, realize I'm not blocking that jump shot. You know, that, that guy's going to pull up from 18. Me getting a hand on him from inside the paint or trying to influence the shot doesn't really change the game at that point. He's already settled for that jump shot. Let me be cognizant of that. Box out my guy and go clear the glass. And I thought in this game, 
he did a much better job of doing that. Six blocks, and you're still thinking he's cognizant about not blocking everything. But, you know, more importantly, Mike, he was actually, you know, we're always saying that Ike's not much on the offensive side. But he was grabbing some offensive boards. He was slapping balls back. He was getting involved in a way that he could. Okay. So why can't that be the expectation on a more consistent basis? Absolutely. I, That's I, what we're I just expect. trying to defend him that he had zero rebounds in that game, but he still had an influence. So it wasn't like, let's pick on Ike. But yeah, if Ike's not going to give me double-digit scoring, I would like to have Ike have three to five blocks. I'd like to see Ike grab seven to 10 rebounds. The guy is seven, two, and he's like an Adonis out there in terms of his body. I know he's not a legit seven, two. Sorry. You know, he's seven, <laughs> uh, whatever, you had, whatever. You had it on good report that he's not seven, two. I'm just yeah, saying. But, but like, I, have, I have to go with what the box score says. The guy, he's in the box score at seven, two. Oh, you change your story every time, man. Why are we picking on what Ike's reported height is? Ike had a good game. There weren't a lot of positives in, in these last two games. Let's just applaud Ike for coming out and having a major influence on keeping Seton Hall somewhat connected in this game and helping them get back in it down the stretch. Speaking of a guy who was instrumental in kind of keeping them connected, Bryce Aiken gutted his way through this ball game. I'm sorry, Tom. He was getting banged around every time he hit the ground or slid to the floor. You're like, uh oh, there goes Bryce. That could be another season ending injury. But to me, he was doing his best Jim Brown of the Cleveland Browns uh, uh, impersonation. Jim Brown would get like tackled and then like limp back to the huddle. And you're like, oh my God, he's like on one leg right now. And then they hand it off to him and he'd break another 15 yard run with like three guys on his back. So every time Bryce went down, you're like, oh, what, what does he have left? And he carried you right until the final seconds of that ball game, trying to give the Pirates some hope. I mean, he scored. I, I think you're just trying to get on John Fanta's good side by simply saying the Cleveland Browns, but you're not kidding. And, you know, in in football, in baseball, you always talk about how many pitches a guy's got left in his career and in football, how many throws that he's got left. How many more minutes does Bryce have before he goes down with an injury at this I point? Just wanna, I just want to get the guy a pair of sneakers that actually don't like slip. I mean, <laughs> Come on already. I, I think we got to maximize his time out there, but I don't mean by maximizing his minutes. I think we got to get, we got to be careful with his minutes, Mike. But, but it was a, it was a pretty cool comeback though, right? They scored Absolutely. 14 points in 43 seconds. If I'm going to give Seton Hall any credit this week, I'm going to sit there and say that was textbook in extending the game to give yourself a chance to make a, you know, a late, rally when you're down by what, you know, whatever it was. I think it was almost even 10 at that point, right? Somewhere in that eight to 10 range. They got a couple steals. They didn't jack up threes. They forced DePaul to go to the line and make free throws. And guess what happened? DePaul made their free throws. So so good for them. Um, but they, they did keep it interesting down the stretch, but there wasn't much else interesting in this game, Tom. No, not at all. You know, moving over to the sour grapes and gripes. How are we never ready for this game, Mike? We walked into this game, it looked like we had no energy, and we hadn't played in a few days, man. This is not like DePaul. DePaul was playing their third game in six days. They came out like on a pogo stick. They had tons of energy. They came out and they played well. I put this on the coaching, man. I was about to say, are you question when you say we weren't ready, were you questioning the coaching? Or are you questioning the preparedness of the players? Are you are you even questioning the fact that maybe they came out too cocky and confident? against a seller dweller in a team like DePaul here who was 0-5 in conference play coming in. 
you know, I guess it's pretty easy as a, you know, a 19 through 25 year old guy thinking, well, we're going to be, you know, we're, we're up here. We've got these big signature wins. We're going up against a team that's 0-4 in conference. And this should be where the coaches make their money. You've got to prep your team. They've got to be emotionally and mentally prepared to take on a game of this kind. Okay, so so let's let's give them the benefit of the doubt and let's assume that the coaching staff did do that, right? They said, hey, let's not take this team for granted. We got an early start today. What was a five o'clock tip? Uh, it was on the it was, East Coast time, right? So five o'clock, four o'clock in the Midwest tip. or something like that. Just all, weird, weird all start I felt time. My afternoon was shot. No work had gotten done. Two p.m. on. But, but you highlight that the game starts with an eighteen to six, you know, burst by DePaul. Kevin Willard doesn't call his first time out until 6.46 to go in the first half. Well, what else do you have to see? How is eight? Why do I have to wait for the media timeout to hit me in the face down 18 to six? If you think that they haven't come out with the proper energy to be connected in this game, to play at the level that they need to play against an inferior opponent, why are we waiting till two thirds of the first half is already behind you? You get four timeouts plus a media timeout every four minutes. Smack them in the face, wake them up, yell at them in the huddle. I mean, keep your composure throughout the full tenor of the game, but get him jump started. I mean, this this whole Kevin Willard, my job is not to motivate my players, as he said in the past. What well, what is that? Your your job is to ground them and motivate them in terms of the opponent and challenge directly in front of them. And they they took they took the ball for granted, and he even said so in his postgame. Right. And, you know, and that first half, man, that was, it was sloppy. It was unfocused. I mean, we always say they're trying hard. So the effort's always there. But what kind of effort was? I can't believe I watched this game a second time. But I'm sitting here writing my notes for this game going, hey, something just didn't sit right with me this entire first half. And when I saw it the second time, and I'm writing down some of these plays, you have moments where, yeah, a team's going to bank in a three or the ball doesn't bounce your way. And you're like, oh, that sucks. That put us that put us in like a five to seven point swing. But Tom, I'm I'm looking at some of these plays, and you tell me. I mean, when you list off the five or six plays that I'm gonna kind of go through here, you're just you're scratching your head. Do you remember Jared Roden gets beat for a layup off an inbounds pass? I think it was right off of a timeout too. You know, later in that first half, Kale gets a steal. He can't finish. He does one of his euro, you know, slow elongated euro steps. Yes, he gets fouled. But that's a momentum-changing play. He gets to the line and clanks another two free throws. Richmond threw an alley-oop to Ike, and Richmond's like just inside the three-point line, and Ike's got his defender pinned. It didn't make it halfway to the basket, Tom. Aiken threw an inbounds pass back to half court that got stolen. It was nowhere close to getting to the Seton Hall player that ignited a fast break, and the only saving grace on that play was that DePaul blew the alley-oop dunk. Otherwise, that was another two points in their favor off of a turnover. Harris passed the ball directly into the defender's hand that was in his face playing defense. I mean, I understand if a player reaches into a passing lane, the guy's got his hands in Harris's face and he passed it right into that hand. And then three possessions in a row towards the end of the first half, both Yetna, Roden, and Jackson just give the ball away. And Seton Hall's response was, Aiken firing a 30-foot air ball. They were down by 18. That was as embarrassing of a first half 
as I've seen the Pirates play in a very long time. And it wasn't just one guy. It wasn't just the coaching staff not being prepared. It was everybody who took the floor in this game. You know, I'm going to stand by my words here, Mike. I said last week that DePaul was not a very good team. Yes, they've got Javon Freeman Liberty leading the Big East in scoring. Don't let me shortchange him at all. But this is not a good team. And you know what? Even the comeback against them in the second half was not enjoyable to watch, and it showed what kind of kind of lackluster team it is. I mean, think about the last few minutes when we were pressing up. We got a five-second call. We got another steal. After a timeout, the ball called timeout to figure out how to inbounds the ball from underneath their own basket, and it ended up bouncing on someone's head and going out of bounds for a seat and all turnover. They took the ball back. This is not a good team. The only time these guys could get any points was because we were fouling them. But it wasn't enjoyable. This is a bad team. We should have blown them out. And Freeman Liberty got hurt to yes. start the second half. Yes. So here's their best player who goes off for double di- double digits, like 13 or so in the first half. And you let, I'm, I'm sorry, you, you let their backup, well, not, no, it's not even their backup. I know he's in their starting rotation, but Jalen Terry is averaging less than six points a game and you let him go off for 26? I mean, come on. No, 28, excuse me. Why do we always let the opposition go off for a career high by a certain player? Now, it's one thing when it's one of their best players and the guy's career high is 24 and he goes for 28. You know, that that's going to happen. The guy averages five points a game and scores 28? Come on. I, I'm, I just, look. We, we can belabor this all you want. You can try to spin it. You can try to break down plays like we normally do. DePaul outplayed Seton Hall in this game. Absolutely. And, and I don't want to hear that, you know, the Big East cannibalizes itself. When you're a special team, you beat the bottom dwellers. And, you know, if this game didn't make you happy, Mike, Saturday's game's not going to put a smile on your face either because Marquette 73, Seton Hall 72. New game, same old slow start as the Golden Eagles jumped out to a 21-12 lead in the first nine minutes of play. An 8-0 run sparked by a Bryce Aiken traditional three-point play, followed by a deep three, cut the lead to three at the break, 44-41. Both teams came out of the break cold, but the Pirates found a way to build their largest lead of the day of five points with 9.42 to go. But each side had answers down the stretch as there were six lead changes and five ties till the home stretch. However, with the game tied with 31 seconds to play, Marquette bled the shot clock for a Greg Elliott long distance attempt that got bailed out by the refs sealing the Hall's fate in a painful and controversial fashion. Oh, man. All right, Tom. Stats on this one. Bryce Aiken, 28 points, 9 of 15 from the floor, 5 of 8 from distance. Alexis Yetna just brought his lunch pail today. 15 points, 16 boards. Obiagu, yes, again, 13 rebounds, 7 blocks. Say it ain't so. All right, opponents, Justin Lewis, 18 points, 5 rebounds, 3 assists. 
Daryl Morsel, 26 points, 8 of 12 from the floor. Couldn't miss from deep, 5 of 6. And guess what, Tommy? Guess what? Yes, it was. Yes, it was. Another career high. All right. Team stats. Three-point shooting. Marquette was blistering out of the gate, 60% in the first half. They finish 11 of 22 for 50%. And Seton Hall shoots a paltry 6 of 21 for 29%. Probably the difference in the game if you think about it. But maybe not. You know, Seton Hall, 16 of 23 from the free throw line, 69%. And they were shooting 89% in their prior three games. And the assist to turnovers, night and day. Marquette, 19 assists, 10 turnovers. Seton Hall, six assists, 20 turnovers. They lost this game, Tom, holding a plus 21 rebounding margin, 47 to 26 over the Golden Eagles. That's hard to fathom. But when you look at some of the other stats we just rattled off, it kind of balances itself out. Tommy, the turning point to me is, is not the final play of the game. I know everyone wants to make it about the final play of the game. Seton Hall is up by three and Marquette just runs a gorgeous offensive set that gets Greg Elliott an open three pointer to tie the game with a buck 24 to play. And you're like, God, come on, Jerry, get through that pick, get over the top, challenge that shot. But he got wiped out. Ike was playing underneath it and Elliott bangs in the three, you know, he's their elder statesman on the team. It was just very well well run and, and orchestrated by Shaka smarts team there. And what do we do? We come back down on offense. Aiken's been kind of doing his thing, and he passes the ball off to Roden, and he was not getting that ball back. Jared goes isolation one-on-one and pulls up and misses an elbow jumper contested, and then we go down the stretch from there, tied it. I think it was tied at 70 at that point. It was a night and day contrast to what Marquette did offensively in a key moment versus what Seton Hall did offensively in a key moment. I thought they got out coached. I don't know if it's philosophy. I don't know if it's style, but there's an opportunity to make key plays down the stretch in the past. Bryce Aiken has bailed this team out with his elite one-on-one hero ball. And this time they got outclassed by good team basketball versus a failure to execute in that one-on-one isolation game. You, you agree or not? You know, what's funny is this is one of those early Saturday games where I could only watch the first half a little bit. And then I had to go to my own kids rec basketball games. But I took but I, like a good pal that you are. I said, Mike, keep updating me. Keep updating me. You know, so I get I get to the game and you're sending me all these scores and what's going on. And I, I asked you, you remember this? How were they doing this in this first half? I left, they were down, and you said one man's name, Bryce Aiken. He was just phenomenal all game long, and he almost pulled another rabbit out of his hat in the final seconds. I mean, it was just a, a, a thing of beauty to watch later on when I got back. Yeah, without his 17 points in the first half, they don't they don't go into the into the break only down three. I'm sitting there scratching my head going, how are they only down three? Like some of that little mini 8-0 run at the end of the half that Bryce kind of completed those two three-point plays, both traditional and a deep three, they should have been down almost double digits. That That's the way that first half felt. And that little mini run for Bryce to close out the half when Seton Hall traditionally doesn't do that, got them right where they needed to be. But you know what? 
as much as you observed and felt the presence of Bryce again in this game, you know, Yetno grabbed 16 rebounds. And I'm saying to myself, was that a quiet 16 rebounds? I did not realize. I'm texting you that Yetna makes the bucket on the offensive putback to put him up by three late. And that's 13 points and 13 boards for him. And as I'm typing up this update, I'm like, holy crap, he's got 13 rebounds at this point. And third, and then he finishes with 16. And I'm like, I it didn't feel like he had 16 rebounds, no? You know, he had I'm going to go on, a, I'm going to call this thing the big brother rebounds too, because he was going in between two or three uh, Golden Eagles and just say, give me this ball. And he was just putting it back up. It's not like they were long balls or he's the only one underneath the basket. He was really grabbing rebounds that he had no business to get. Now, I'm, I'm not trying to diminish what he accomplished. Marquette is deficient in terms of defensive rebounding that's one of their flaws and he was grabbing boards on both the offensive side and the defensive side of the glass i think he had six offensive rebounds but are we starting to take yetna's rebounding for granted a little bit you know we were kind of throwing out the numbers i kind of gave you my scenarios that gets him back to like eight plus per game by backing out certain nyack numbers but you know now he's putting up some robust games of 16 yeah I, I don't know. I mean, he's starting to establish himself as that junkyard dog rebounder that we thought we were going to get. God, no? I hate that junkyard dog term. Everyone's a junkyard dog. I enjoy the fact that we're taking his rebounding for granted. We always took Angel's rebounding for granted. Just go in there, grab those double-digit boards, and and and, and get your don't butt down a, by the basket. Don't take a shot at my junkyard dog reference. It's there's a, a difference. A, a, difference lunch, in, uh, there's, let me, let me give you my... They brought us work. Uh, you know, no, I, I no. There, there's like a difference junk, in certain... There's junkyard a difference dog, in certain, you, you label the guy junkyard dog when he doesn't have the skill sets, all right? You know, let, let's not let's... There's a difference in junkyard dog rebounding versus the Russell Westbrook type rebounding when he's got three of his teammates on the on the free throw line. You love the, taking shots the opposition misses a free throw, and here comes Russell Westbrook coming in to grab a rebound to pad his triple double stats. Can, can we get back hey, to college? I, I, I will, but yet his rebounding was not, you know, the it was the antithesis of what I just described with Russell Westbrook. He was in there mucking it up with multiple guys, getting on the floor to get that rebound, you know, getting him in traffic. It wasn't like, hey, they took a thing. Seton Hall takes a plenty of bad shots where we have nobody underneath. And the guy for the opposition just grabs the easiest rebound known to man. That is not a junkyard dog rebound. Yet is in there banging bodies. I, I, I just hate that term. It, it just diminishes uh, the skill set. But you know who else? Had, you know who it. else brought his lunch pail to the game, Mike? Iko Biagu. Look at those stripes, man. They've changed. Oh my goodness. Maybe he that the pole game was a turning point for him. What other narrative uh, words do you want me to use? Thirty-seven oh, no. minutes. He was a game changer defensively. He had thirteen boards, swatted seven more shots, and he shot by him. He was throwing it out in every direction. What a game by Ike. So, so what number that Ike put up in this game jumps at you the most? Is it the minutes played? Is it the Absolutely. 13 boards? That, that, that he could put 37 minutes in there. I, I agree. And still be athletic and still keep moving at the end of that game. It's a big body to move for 37 minutes. And, and not feel like he got exploited during that time period. Here's, here's a smaller team, a team that is not going to hit the glass 
So I would expect Ike to step it up a little bit, but yeah, he stepped it up to 13, you know, when he's normally grabbing three. So very proud of Ike on this one, but Marquette's the type of team that normally gives him a problem. You know, Justin Lewis and his athleticism, uh, you know, and other guys that can be more nimble and move around the perimeter. I didn't feel like, even though they tried to put Ike in as much pick and roll uh, basketball as they could, so did DePaul. I feel like Ike did his best to not feel like he was being neutralized or exposed on the defensive side of the floor. And he acquitted himself okay offensively, right? I mean, we're sitting there downplaying it, right? But he, he does okay. He does I've been okay. saying this all season long. He is, if there's anything that he's improved on, it's his footwork and it's getting out there on that pick and roll. He's not as big a liability as he used to be with those big clocked feet, man. So, so we're going to get into this as we start moving into sour grapes and grapes. Just, just remember that I played 37 minutes. Uh, that might even be a Seton Hall career high in minutes logged. They didn't log, uh, look that up to confirm it, but I'm going to go out on a limb and say that was his Seton Hall career high in minutes played. So, so, so while, while we're on this subject of Ike playing 37 minutes, let's transition right into the depth of the rotation. So did Ike play 37 minutes because he was dominating the game or because Kevin Willard in the second half decided to go with a six-player rotation, essentially benching Trey Jackson, Tyree Samuel, and Jameer Harris? I mean, one of the strengths that this team was known for was going nine deep and potentially 10 in certain scenarios, wear down the opponent, pound them in the front court because we got four capable bodies. And instead, he ran Yetna and Ike the entire second half. Now, they, they stayed effective, if you ask me, but th- that's supposed to be part of what we do well is to stay fresh and continue to pound on you with that deep talent that we talked about early in the non-conference. Tom, it, it was not there in this game. Was it warranted to bench all three of those guys the entire second half? Well, so two of those three, I think it was warranted. And and let's start with one of my favorite guys, Tyrese. Tyrese, you could, let's throw the UConn game out. But since he came back from the COVID pause, he, it's been a little difficult for him. And I think it all stems from early foul trouble in both the DePaul game and the Marquette game he got two quick fouls in the first half and they had to yank him I think that throws him off kilter because he can't build a rhythm so once he's out of rhythm he's really out of rhythm and there was a really bad defensive play where basically he just let one of his guys blow right by him it was disgusting Harris has basically been a zero for you outside that one great game that he played. I mean, what does he really bring to the table at this point? Tom, he, had, he had a good game against Nyack. Please, please. Oh, stop yeah. it. Stop two games, it. two games. Don't, don't, don't downgrade the Nyack game. He had a good game against Nyack too. And, no and, win Nyack. To defend Harris just a little bit, if you're not really going to run anything that's going to help him get into the game, I don't know what you're doing with it. Now, the Trey Jackson seems a little bit weird. He came out at the start of the game, and he seemed to be really excited about his start. He played well, hit a bucket early, grabbed an offensive rebound early, which love to see that because we said rebounded was one of his uh, weaker points. But then after he, he gets that flagrant foul, it's like he doesn't see the court again. Yeah, I, I, I didn't understand it. I mean, it, was, it wasn't a good play. It wasn't egregious. 
I just I, I I thought he's given you good contributions over the course of the last several games. I don't understand the complete yank. I didn't go back to watch Jackson's you know involvement defensively as to maybe why you know Marquette got off to such a hot start shooting the three ball. I I, I don't know. Samuel has looked disengaged. He's looked lazy. I, I know you want to bring it back down to the two fouls, Tom. He's back to being a black hole offensively. It doesn't matter where he gets the ball along the baseline to start his offensive move, but he's made up his mind that he's going to shoot the ball. Now, when you're right, when he gets the first couple to go down, he seems invigorated. He seems to play defensively at a different level, but he's getting blocked by the rim on numerous occasions because once by the rim, he's he's putting himself at a position underneath the basket or even to an extreme behind the backboard, forcing himself to try to take extreme reverse layup type attempts to get his shot off. You know what? It's okay to pass the basketball. You're, well, you're I'm not sorry. Wrong. It you're just, not wrong that he's making the game harder for himself. And I think that's a lot of to do with rhythm. And, and he really needs to watch those early fouls so he can get that rhythm. But, you know, get him an easy bucket or two. When he succeeds, it's almost like he gets set up by the point guards to get an easy jam, and then all of a sudden it kind of flows with it. All right, now now I'm going to eat crow, and and I don't want to hear about it for the rest of the year on the podcast because I know you want to bury me with this, but I will be the first to admit right now and going forward that we have to reevaluate the Jameer Harris influence on this team. And, And you made a good point. If Willard is not going to run offensive sets to get this guy quality three-point shots with his feet set, then I don't know what he brings to this team. He has not been able to demonstrate against Big East-level competition that he can beat his guy off the dribble. He's what? He's a 6'2 shooting guard, so he's going to be undersized defensively regardless of the effort that he gives us. And I I can't knock his effort defensively, but he's going to be undersized against most of the Big East level shooting guards, and he's going to be giving up a lot defensively in those situations. So at what point does Willard sit there and say, all right, I'm making this switch. I'm going to go Harris to the bench, which we've now seen his minutes get cut back severely. But in doing so, he has played Kale for much longer stretches, and, and Kale's played much better than Harris. But let's be fair, Kale has not acquitted himself defensively as well as we expect him to. Where is the opportunity for Brandon Weston to step in and get some minutes now to see if he, as a top 100 recruit, can earn his way into this rotation? I don't think you're wrong. And you know I am the biggest Kale Stan out there. And and these past couple weeks have been painful to watch. You know, usually if he's not being overly aggressive on offense, that defense still makes up for it. And he's just not playing well. You're getting minus level play from the two position. Why not try Weston at this point and see what you can get out of it? What's it going to hurt to play him five to ten minutes, especially... When Big East experience is so important, like Coach Willard told us last week, I don't just want to see him in the last less than minute of the DePaul game out there just because he's got five fouls. Do not give him the Rashid Anthony treatment. 
Get him out there. See what he could do. How could it be worse, Michael? It can't be worse. So, I mean, I can understand if Willard's like, this was a nip and tuck game. It was just like the UConn game. Man, that UConn game was intense. Right back and forth. High-level basketball. Probably not the moment that you want to throw him in there to try to get his feet wet. But the team, Tom, commits 20 turnovers. They're not sharing the basketball with only six assists. If there's a game to get him in there to kind of try to spark the other guys to do better and to scare them by basically saying, hey, look, if you're not going to play at a high level, I got a guy on the bench that's going to come in and take your minutes. This was the game. So I, I, I'm confused. But to stick well, with this either 20 this or the DePaul game, I would have taken it from sure, either sure. game. Without a doubt, either or, couldn't complain, right? You're getting pummeled by 18 in the first half. Why can't you send a message then? But, I mean, let's stick with this 20 turnovers or six assists. I mean, the numbers are jumping off the page. 328th ranked nationally at 10.6 assists per game. Tom, this one blew my mind. 353rd ranked nationally on assist percentage of field goals made. That means there's five teams in the entire country that are worse than us in terms of sharing the basketball on the percentage of buckets they make. And and Bryce Hagan, for as good of a game that he had, the 28 points that he had, all the attention that he was drawing to himself, he got one assist as your point guard? Tom, it's a broken record for me. Everything is one-on-one, and we are seeing even less and less of the pick and roll offense too. Well, let's just take the last three games as a subset so far, Mike. This past game, Bryce Aiken went nuts against Marquette. But how does Bryce get there? He brings the ball down. He jacks a shot. He drives to the basket. It's not like he's passing the ball around, getting into some kind of offensive set and having the ball come back to him. You go back to the DePaul game. Jared Roden led the team in scoring. How does he normally do it? He gets the ball and pulls his favorite Carmelo Anthony move. He pounds it, pounds it, pounds it, ends up taking a a long mid-range jumper. Before that, it was Kadari Richmond coming down, going nuts against UConn. Luckily, that wasn't a win, but that's still him bringing the ball down, posting, driving, shooting, whatever it was. There's no ball motion, Mike. And I don't want to hear Kevin Willard talk about him cutting down his offense because you know how big his offensive play card is. Since when? When have we seen any kind of intricate offenses run by Seton Hall? Stop it. You're going to an isotype offense where whoever you have decided is your man that night is the one that's leading your offense. Come on, Tom. Down the stretch in this game, Marquette was shooting 29% from the floor in the second half. I'm not sure where they finished out. But I went back and I'm looking at the numbers. Do you know that Marquette started the second half 1 of 14 from the floor with two turnovers over the course of eight and a half minutes of play? We started the first half, or excuse me, we started the second half down by three. Based on the numbers that I just threw at you, what do you think the lead should have been built to? Oh, it, it should have been a big lead at that point. Should have been a runaway. They should have blown him out of the building at that point. Tom, they built the lead to five. To five. 
five. They had an eight-point swing when your opponent made one bucket and basically screwed up, geez, 15 other times with missed shots and turnovers. And you blink. You blink. And four minutes later, that five-point lead, they're trailing by two again. I Marquette has been a respectable team. But, geez, can we not put them on a pedestal? They were still, what, 11-6 and six coming into this game? I know they had won three in a row, but it was against a depleted Providence team. And once again, the bottom feeders of the conference, DePaul and Georgetown? I mean, good God, the announcers were just pumping them up. Seton Hall should take a stretch like that and bury an inferior opponent, whether it's home or on the road, and they missed out on their opportunity because they shot during that same stretch 24%. Look, we keep on saying this is who they are, but it's been systematically broken for a long time right now. And to me, it comes down to coaching because it's not just this year's Pirates team. It's over and over throughout the Kevin Willard regime. And I I got one more thing that I want to take issue with before we get into this, you know, horrendous foul call to end the game. I'm, and I'm going to start an issue here. I don't think Jared Roden likes that Bryce is the alpha down the stretch late. You know why? Because I gave you that turning point. You know, Bryce was hot. Bryce was doing his thing. Bryce passed that ball over to Jared after Marquette had tied the game on the Elliott three-pointer. Jared had no intention to pass that ball to anybody. To give it back to Bryce, to play a two-man game, to create off the dribble and get him something else. Tom, he wasn't. He just wasn't. And I'm concerned about maybe where the chemistry of this team goes in the future here as they have to try to right the ship. Mikey, is that a hot take? Did you just give us a hot take, man? I'm not touching that. With a ten foot pole, man, I am not going into the. You don't. DMC you don't have to touch it, but you know who else didn't get touched? I'm sorry, Greg Elliott did not get touched. Bryce Aiken oh. hit him with his chin. He got hit with his. I'm sorry. You know, I hate complaining about the ref. Seton Hall should not have put themselves in that position to be tied and leave it up to a bad call, a la the Villanova game last year. But but that was horrendous. The refs calling the foul on that play to dictate the game. I know it was a James breeding called game again, but he didn't even make the call. The big East has to start taking issue with certain referee crews and how they're calling the game. Not not only that call, but afterwards the ref telling kale that he's allowed to run the baseline after a dead ball timeout on a rebound. You can only run the baseline off of a made free throw or a made basket. If you call timeout, uh, and come back to the course of play. And the ref is telling Kale, you could run the baseline. And the other ref, after he sees Kale run the baseline, he's like, time, that's a travel, game over. And the ref's like, uh, crap, I screwed that up. How you guys re- get to do that over again. How ready were we to blame Coach Willard and the coaching staff for that bumble right there? I mean, how do you not come out of there saying you can't, you're not running the baseline, it's off a missed shot, I, I still think that Miles Kale should have known that better. What? He should have even had to ask uh, the ref. The right, coaching the, the staff ref... should have let them know, look, missed free throw. We're not running the baseline. How about if the ref makes that signal? If I'm Kale, I mean, I know it's a road environment. I know it's it's a high-tense, high-pressure situation. But the ref's like, you can run the baseline. If I'm Kale, I'm like, no, I can't. 
I'm, I'm doing like a double take. I'm like, you sure? Right? <laughs> I don't know. I, oh, the whole thing was a the whole thing was a mess. And it sucks that over and over again, Seton Hall is getting involved on the wrong side of these calls. But I'm gonna take issue with this. I'm sorry to Jerry Carino. It is not a call or a game that will live in infamy. As he as he tweeted no, out, yeah, mid, come on, mid January games don't live in infamy. That's a, that's just a bad take there. But you know, Mike, we've been complaining. We've been very negative. Let's have a little fun the rest of the way. Let's give some grief to people that deserve it. And let's start off by talking about the Mike flops. And boy, were there a bunch of them this game. Right. Hey, look, it was it was equally shared in both games. So to start with the top. You got you got Nick Ba doing the color. I forget who the play by play guy is. I can't believe we're gonna give him a pass here. But you know, they're they're talking they're kind of giving descriptive analysis to kind of keep the audience engaged. And I hate when they do that. And they're kind of stretching the narrative. You yell at me for narratives. They are stretching the narrative beyond acceptability here. Hit me with hit the audience. I, with I the was audio giving here. Nick Bob player of the game because he was the only one keeping my interest in this thing. No, normally, I'd like Nick Bob. I think Nick Bob does a really good job, but not this particular sequence. Still a fourteen-point lead right now. It doesn't feel like a fourteen-point lead. No, it does not. So, Mike, you know, they continued this over and over. They kept trying to keep the audience engaged. This doesn't seem like a 14-point lead. This doesn't seem like a 12-point lead. Oh, this is going to be a tense final 12 minutes. I don't know what audience he was trying not to get to change the television station as we're, we're broadcasting a 4 o'clock central start time. I mean, either you're a Seton Hall fan or you're a DePaul fan watching this game. This is not like a national Fox audience that they're trying to keep on the hook. Tom, he even said prior to that sequence, looks like Seton Hall is settling into this game. What team settles into a game when they're down by 14? It was it was just a bad take. Well, man. maybe it if really they were was. down by 34 at the point and they got up to 16, maybe they were settling into the game. Hey, but, man, hey, we, we, we got the walk-on on. He had a couple buckets. Looks like Seton <laughs> Hall is he's, it's finally going to get into this game now. I mean, come on. What is that? What well, is you that? Know, I don't, I, I don't I, I, I'll tell you who didn't have a good time either. You know, Dave Popkin, friend of the podcast who we like, he kind of asked Coach... Kind of a dumb question. I, let, let's listen into the post game from DePaul. Let's talk about the uh, pressure and the comeback there. You're down 18 and then came uh, storming back, uh, pressed for about two-thirds of the game. Do you feel like you, you found a little something defensively there that can kind of uh, get gave, you some? We, we just gave up 96 points. I don't think I, we found anything defensively there. I mean, what a good answer by Kevin. I mean, normally we sit there and bash Kevin for most of his answers, but... He just looks at, I could just imagine what a, what the expression on his face was like, Popkin, we just gave up 96 points. I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get beaten up for this take here. I think Popkin is clearly intimidated by Kevin Willard in the postgame, specifically when Popkin has been solo or without Gary in other scenarios, uh, and, and particularly in, in a loss. And I think Willard beats up on Popkin to no end, knowing that he doesn't have, you know, the professional lore of a Gary Cohen asking that question. And I think the delivery between Gary and Dave is night and day. 
but but Kevin just beat him up there with that answer. I, you know, I he he kind of deserved it, but you know, it got worse. It, it couldn't. Have, you would expect it to get better after those two, but it got worse. Come the Marquette game, I didn't even need the game to start when I knew there was a flop already. Hello again, everybody. Matt Schumacher, the three-time NBA champion. Dickie Simpkins with you. The minute Dickie Simpkins' face came on the screen, I said to myself, oh, this is going to be a long game, Mike. And you know, once again, it didn't take Dickie all that long to prove me right, Michael, because he came back with this gem. Jared Roden, one of my star players in the Big East, can do it all on the offensive end and the defense end. Scores at all four levels. I, I think Dickie just created another level. I mean, uh, I had to look it up just to make sure I was not wrong here. But so normally an announcer will say, hey, a ball player can score at all three levels. Shoot the three, play the mid-range game, get to the rim. And normally if you get to the rim, you're either going to score or get fouled. But no, in, in Dickie's book, it's shoot the three, hit the mid-range, get to the rim, and then shoot free throws. Maybe he's right and we're wrong, Mike, but I've never heard a four-level scorer. Oh, man. And, and Dickie was fanboying the entire game. Every time that there was a block, he's jumping out of his seat. He, he had a tagline where he's like, security, security. Uh, uh, it was just, yeah, be, be better. Be better than that. You're on a Fox broadcast. It's not your first rodeo. You're not that good, first of all, where you get away with, you know, a tagline like Gus Johnson or Bill Raftery, where you can go to your your bag of tricks and be respected for that. I'm sorry. I'm not okay when you're screaming into the mic. You can yell at us for screaming into the mic all you want. It's, it's our show. Have a little bit of professionalism if you're Dickie Simpkin representing the Big East. That was kind of subpar, if you ask me. And I wanted to just shut the broadcast off and, and, and mute it at, at a certain point. It was that annoying. But we got to do our due diligence and you know, Dickie didn't leave us short with opportunities for the podcast. I'll, I'll just leave it at that. But let's share the love, Mike. We've been banging on the announcers. Let's let's go to our favorite segment. And now, deep thoughts with Kevin Willard. All right, Tommy. I I, I don't know about that transition. Now, banging banging on guys, pick, picking on people that the the program loves. You know, coaches our guy, but. He, he did, he did once again, kind of give it to Dave, you know, during the DePaul game. I mean, he was short with his answers, but the one that he led off with is the one that kind of stuck with me the most. The question from Dave is, what did DePaul do to build the lead? Yeah, I mean, you know, I, I thought I thought we came out and, you know, we, we reverted back to taking too many pull-up jumpers. I mean, it's, it's, just, it's mind-boggling some of the shots that we take, um, you know, especially to start the game, you know, we, we just took too many pull-up jumpers and didn't, weren't aggressive getting uh, to the rim. And, you know, we, we really reverted back to playing way too much one-on-one basketball. And, you know, um, and to their credit, it, that let them get out in transition. They're great in transition. And, um, you know, really hurt us on our pick-and-roll defense. So if we went back and analyzed the number of questions that Kevin gets asked immediately after a loss on the post game with, with Gary and Dave, 
what percentage of questions do you think he answers relative to the question that was posed to him? <laughs> That's a good question because it was funny. I, it's funny that he totally turned it out and he said he, he wanted to come out there and say, no, they didn't do anything to us. We did this to ourselves. This is the problem. And, you know, he even throws in a little line later on where he says they're really great on transition. This is the Paul Mike. They're not really great on anything, okay? Stop it. If you watch the way we played on transition this year, anybody looks great on transition compared to us. Uh, his, his demeanor and his frustration around the offense, even though that was not the question asked, his shock and awe over the poor shot selection blows my mind. If you're not going to put them into offensive sets, that's going to try to work the defense to get yourself a quality look off of good ball movement, off of moving without the basketball, setting picks, creating motion. I know this is not high school in the Princeton offense, but if you're going to stand around four guys on the perimeter, watching one guy do his thing, or three guys standing around watching pick and roll with no additional movement, it's going to lead to ultimately bad shots. So Kevin being surprised as to what they ended up getting, that was kind of that was kind of disappointing from me, my perspective, because that means that he's not prepared to fix it. That's my concern with that answer, Tom. At this point, you're almost expecting Kevin to take things in his own direction. You know, it's funny, even when he wins – he kind of turns questions on their heads and, and goes in whatever direction of the, you know, that that narrative. I, I think we got to come up with a synonym for narrative because I think I've said it about 20 times well, today. You know, when they win, he's a comedian. When they lose, right, he's Ebenezer he's, Scrooge. He's still turning the questions around. And he, he's kind of, he's almost using it as a pulpit, if you will, to just get that information out that he wants to get out. That's fair. Question I think that's damned. fair. I think that's fair. We started off this week with some interesting things about Kevin Willard, to be honest with you. And when you brought this up as being our what did you see moment of the week, I, I kind of pushed it. But you know what? We're trying to get in, we're trying to get creative. But this one bothered me more at the beginning of the week than it matters now. I mean, after everything happened uh, this week, it, it almost seems like it's not that important. But Late last week, during the Maryland-Wisconsin game, at the end of it, excuse me, at the end of the Maryland-Wisconsin game, a, kind of a plethora of quote-unquote reporters tweeted out that the Maryland crowd was chanting Kevin Willard's name. Like, Kevin Willard, clap, 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 clap. And, and I was like, I got to see if I can find this, you know, you know, so I went in, I dug into the archives and here's what I found. I, I was a little confused, Mike, by this whole situation, but this is what I found. Just going to ask you that. I mean, Davison doesn't miss that badly too exactly. often. Let's take a look right there. Yeah. He pulled his arm. He did that on purpose. And then they tried to cover. And good job by Hepper getting in front of Ayala, making that an even more difficult shot than it. So, Mike, let me ask you a few <laughs> questions. What does that sound like? Does right, so, that so, sound like seven or eight fraternity guys? I, I, was, I was about to say, Jerry Carino prides himself on calling out the attendance in these arenas. I and mean, oh, that was 7,000 tonight. Oh, that, that was definitely 11. 
Well, if you watch the video at the end of the Wisconsin-Maryland game, I got to think that the over-under of people that was still there in a one-point game, it felt like there were 500 people in the arena. Well, and that was what? That, that was like five fraternity brothers that were chanting there? Well, well, that's a good point here, Mike, because you know I went to the highlights to see what was going on. And Maryland was trying to kind of make this rally at the end to overcome Wisconsin. Number 23 ranked Wisconsin, by the way. And they're trying to, they're they're making shots, they're grabbing boards, they're making this furious comeback, and and a half-court shot goes to the left, it doesn't go in, and Maryland nets up losing the game by one point. This is not like in the middle of a 20-point loss that a crowd is chanting, Kevin Willard, shame on you. You want to be reporters for even bring this up. Context matters. Five guys at the end of a telecast screaming Kevin Willard's name does not make the quote unquote crowd chanting his name. Shame on you. Well, were they also not chanting Gary Williams name apparently earlier in the game along with other coaches that they possibly want me gary williams is retired i know he's an icon but they're cheering gary williams name look all it did was spark a ton of debate out there on social media relative to why would kevin willard leave seton hall when this is the prototypical lifetime job you know as the head man for the pirates and we have our new segment, right? Where we're out there trying to find our social media post of the week for the podcast. And this week, I'm going to go with SHU Pirates 28 on Rivals as he responds and says, you know what? Willard's close friend, Mick Cronin, left a lifetime job at Cincinnati to go to UCLA. Don't think he regrets making that move. For every cautionary tale, there is one that has worked out well. And at the end of the day, this talk means that Seton Hall is doing well as a program. And that is all we want. So I thought that kind of put this debate into perspective, right? If your coach is desirable for other places, that just means that there's positive attention around your program. And all of this coincided with the big win against UConn last Saturday on national television. But this is also before... Seton Hall took the court for the two losses that we experienced this week. So, Tom, I know you didn't want me to go here, but the the DePaul loss really irked me. And because it's not the first time that Seton Hall has lost to DePaul. Did you know that since Kevin Willard has become the coach for Seton Hall, that DePaul in-conference play has only won 37 games? And that Willard's record during that stretch against DePaul is 14 and seven, 19% of their wins have come against Seton Hall. So I decided to look it up and say, all right, we want to be the elite of the elite in the conference. Let's look at some of the other top coaches and their performance against DePaul in this same stretch. So obviously I, I went immediately to Jay Wright and said, all right, does Jay Wright ever stub his toe against DePaul? And the answer is no. During that same stretch, Jay Wright is 18 and 0. And then I said, okay, who else do we hold in high regard as a coach in this conference? 
and Creighton's been pretty successful. What does Doug McDermott do against the Paul during the same stretch since Creighton has entered the Big East? 16 and one. And then I was like, well, all right, if those guys are doing well, we love ourselves some Ed Cooley. How does Ed Cooley do against DePaul during the same stretch? Oh, geez, Ed. 15, 14 and five. And they also have an additional loss to DePaul during the Big East tournament. And when Kevin Willard first got here, Keno Davis was the coach for one year, and they actually lost to Paul that year. So Seton Hall during Kevin Willard's regime, 14 and seven. Providence's entire program during that same regime, also 14 and seven. And the elite of the elite just pounds on DePaul. 38% of DePaul's wins have come against Tommy, Seton Hall, and Providence. I'm sorry, but when you look at Kevin Willard as a potential candidate for other jobs, he's going to be looked at not just in a microcosm of what happened this week or, hey, did they have, did, you know, what's he doing with the program overall? I think they're going to look at a whole bunch of things. They're going to look at, his entire body of work. They're going to look at what he has done in March. But then I also sit there and go, hey, we had an expectation for this week. And I was frustrated about not beating a team that is below 500. Not just the ball, but we kind of rewind the clock last year when we needed to get some big wins. So I did some more research. You know, Jerry Carino was reporting about how tough it is to win on the road for Rutgers and Seton Hall. Okay, whatever. I did my research. During Kevin Willard's tenure against teams that have finished conference play in the Big East under 500, Kevin Willard is 57 and 26 in his tenure as coach. That is a 69% winning percentage. Okay, that, that, that's not bad. But once again, teams below 500. 18 and two during a three year stretch with Whitehead for that first year, Desi KC. And Delgado, 18-2 and two against teams under 500 during that three-year window. If you back that out, Kevin Willard's winning percentage is 61% otherwise. That is an average of going 6-4 and four against below 500 teams in conference play. If we start the week's podcast and say we're playing the bottom half of the conference and there's a good chance that 50-50 we might lose this game, how do you feel? Let, let me get recruited away, man. Well, well, Mike, I, I think you need some context in your numbers because if we're talking about teams that finish under 500, we're also talking about that team that goes 9 and 11, which is not far from our 10 and 10, 11 and 9 average that we've been going through. So, I mean, your point against the Paul is, is well met. I mean, you can't lose... To that team, you can't be the one in the one and four. Now, let let us be let's be honest. Let's be frank. If Kevin Willard continues his success, there will be teams that want to steal him away from Seton Hall. You know, what, who was it a couple years ago that he dallied? He had that. He had Virginia, that, Tech. Virginia, Virginia Tech. Virginia Tech. Virginia Tech is probably an appropriate level school that's going to want to take a chance on a Kevin Willard. Maryland fancies themselves as a Final Four uh, participant every year because they want to win the Big Ten. They want to win the Big Ten. Right, but if they did, but, but they want to win the Big Ten. They want to be in the Final Four. They want to be in play for the national championships. 
And if you look at Mark Turgeon, he is he was a successful coach, and they ran him out of town. So, so I don't I'll, see I'll, I'll, a, a I, program I, I, that has got visions of the success that Maryland does. Now, mind you, Maryland's won one t- national title, and it was like 20 years ago. They need to pump the brakes a little bit. Yeah, but they they made it to Final Fours. They've challenged they at the top they of the. Have. Come on, they challenged at the top of the AC against Duke when Duke was at its peak. You know, they've won a Big Ten title since switching over to the Big Ten. I mean, the fact that they ran Turgeon out of town, it is a high standard at this program. I'll say this: if you're looking at the overall body work of Kevin Willard, he's done some positive things. He has some success. But overall, it's above average if you start diving into some of the numbers that we're breaking down. However, if Kevin finds a way to get this team into a deep run like they were hoping a couple of years ago, that is sexy. That catches the eye of the national scope of college basketball, and it puts you on a radar that's not the same as when you're evaluating how the team is playing in the middle of January against conference opponents. So it just happens to be that Turgeon was fired in the middle of the season, and this oh, is going to hit the storyline. Sorry, he resigned, pushed out, you name it. But it's going to kind of carry that storyline throughout the year, and we're going to evaluate. Oh crap! They just lost to Paul. Do they want him now? I, I, I think we need to wait to the end of the year, see where the state of that program is, and see where Seton Hall finishes before we start jumping on these soapboxes of Kevin Willard moving on. Michael. Let's move on to your favorite spot. I've got two minutes on the clock. Knock yourself out. This is like my kids brushing their teeth. You take the hourglass, you flip it over, and I got to watch the sand. Yeah, I hear you. You're down to 150. Let's go. Look, top 25. We're not going to be in the top 25. I mean, the, the takeaway this week is that, you know, top 25 teams lose. There's another 15 games this week involving top 25 teams losing. And to me, the highlight is that four teams lost twice. Obviously, Seton Hall, but you had a number one Baylor team lose twice. You had USC lose twice, and you also had Alabama. Seven of those games, though, were against other teams that were in the top 25. Seton Hall fans have to remember, we lost to two teams that were unranked, including DePaul. It's going to be hard to climb back into the top 25. And I don't want to hear about excuses anymore. If anything was a takeaway from this week in the top 25, Texas Tech has wiped that out. No more excuses. No, the committee is going to look at us differently. Texas Tech was missing their top two players. No Terrence Shannon, no Kevin McCuller. They're two leading scorers, and they lost at number 11 Iowa State by four, and then they bounced back to win against number six Kansas, and then they get McCuller back this week, and they win at number one Baylor, still missing Taryn Shannon. Where are the excuses from from Texas Tech? Is Texas Tech asking for a a different evaluation by the committee? No, they are taking care of business and putting more key wins on their resume. Tom, I know you don't like this. Seton Hall, after the setback this week to be two and four in conference play, they need to start worrying about where their resume is shaping up to be in the NCAA tournament. Right now, Net and Ken Palm, they dropped to 30 in both. That kind of puts you right around that 8 to 10 range that we're always weary of. They got three quad one wins, which is still pretty strong. But I'm telling you now, 
I know I'm beating this drum. Michigan is now seven and seven with a net of 58. If that, if they continue to struggle and that falls below 75, no longer a quad one win. And Texas is now 0-4 versus quad one opponents. And since they lost again this week, they're probably going to drop out of the top 25. I'm sorry, but their two top 10 wins are not going to carry the same cachet that we thought they were going to carry or currently do, did from way back several weeks ago. And you don't like it, but that's the reality. Well, this quasi bye week couldn't have gotten to us fast enough. The Providence game was canceled. So now our next game is St. John's next Saturday. And we're going to go behind enemy lines with Zach Braziller to talk about that game later in the week. And even with all this negativity, Mike, we're going to be sitting back. We're going to be rooting for our Pirates. And we're going to be saying... Go Pirates. And I'm not giving you any predictions. As I say, go Big Blue. Thanks for joining another episode of Left Coast Pirates. Be sure to follow us on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or any of your other favorite listening platforms. Also, be sure to follow us on Twitter with our handle at L Coast Pirates. And don't miss out on any of our previous episodes that include interviews with Seton Hall legends, Danny Calandrillo, Mark Bryant, Andrew Gaze, Shaheen Holloway, and many others. For Tom Gaharski, I'm Mike Deziri, and you've been listening to Left Coast Pirates. (laughs) 